This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly and we are bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Paul Rosalie discusses his new book, Mother of God, an extraordinary journey into the uncharted tributaries of the Western Amazon. Then PW blogger Josie Levitt takes us behind the counter of her bookstore. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. We've got a bunch of new things on the fiction side. We have a new number one. Uh, Lots of turnover this time of year. We're starting to see those big spring and summer books Mm -hmm. peaking over the horizon. And this one is Janet Ivanovich's The Chase, co-written with Lee Goldberg. Uh, This is another action-adventure sort of thing featuring master con artist Nicholas Fox, um, which is a name I happen to love, um, as as that would be my uncle's name, actually, Ah. Uh, and diehard FBI agent. Kate O'Hare. Um, so, of course, these are the fox and hare uh, mysteries. And, you know, they, there's government secrets and scams. And it, it's, a, it's a nice combination of, you know, sort of she's on the side of law and order and, and he's the one going around sneaking and scamming and stealing. Uh, and, you know, they're very reliable. The reviews so far are pretty strong. Uh, and that's number one with a bullet for Janet Ivanovich oh. and Lee Goldberg. Number four on the hardcover fiction list, we have The Undead Pool by Kim Harrison. This is the 12th and penultimate book in her Hollows series, a very, very popular urban fantasy series uh, featuring Rachel Morgan, who's a witch and a bounty hunter and lately has been turned into a demon. It's always awkward when that happens. Uh, so you know, she's uh, she's going around solving problems in Cincinnati with its uh, undead community. She has issues with elves and vampires and so forth and so on and uh, we say there's a general sensation of closure and imminent climax as Harrison maneuvers toward the end and patient readers are promised a substantial payoff in the coming final book Mm. 13 so that's at number 4 Number 15, going a little bit further down the list, we have Laurie Moore's short story collection, Bark. Mm-hmm. Uh, we gave this a starred review right. in Publishers Weekly. Um, there are eight stories in the collection, and we say they are laugh-out-loud funny, as well as full of pithy commentary on contemporary life and politics. And Moore's final note is one of hope and even love, not the romantic kind, but the kind that sees the whole world, flaws and all, and embraces it anyway. You know, it, it seems in years past that People have bemoaned that short stories don't sell. Short story collections don't get picked up. They Mm. don't get sold. But here, as we've been doing these bestseller lists, we've been seeing and looking at the bestseller list, so many more collections come up. So it's it's interesting that uh, how people's reading habits do change. I think, and and especially with Lori Moore, uh, who's got a who's got a strong following, Mm -hmm. Um, and and nice to see her come out with a book of short stories that 
and nice to see her, I should say, do so well with the book of short stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, this this particular uh, collection, like I said, it's at number 15. Uh, it's really a strong showing yeah. for, for a book of shorts. So sure. um, I, I think that's pretty impressive. And maybe we'll see more short fiction hitting the list. But yeah. definitely something that's kind of feel good. I know people bring that sort of thing out around the holidays. And then that's more for the sappy, sentimental type of thing. Right now, with winter dragging on, what I really need is something that's about love for the whole world. I need to be reminded that we can feel those kinds of warm feelings. Sure. So I think March is a perfect time for it. Yeah, well, and, and nonfiction, but maybe not love for the whole world, maybe more um, uh, love of self or something. I don't know. We've got, we, we, <laughs> sti we still have a lot of books that are diet, health books, whether, whether they're how-to or nonfiction or you know, stronger narrative, longer narrative, uh, or even how-to scientific quest to empower the mind, enhance the brain. So we still have a lot of books that are focusing on the self and nonfiction mm -hmm. and how-to. Topping the list, number one, is the Blood Sugar Solution 10-Day Detox Diet. Uh, this is by Mark Hyman, who's best known for his The Blood Sugar Solution, The Blood Sugar Cookbook. Uh, subtitle, Activate Your Body's Natural Ability to Burn Fat and Lose Weight Fast. And a lot of what, a lot of the books that are coming out now, including uh, J.J. Virgin's book that was out uh, that we talked about last week is eliminating foods and, and quite a bit, quite a few foods. And, and I think, um, uh, according to our review, uh, Hyman here is 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 asking in his book requires to uh, eliminate sugars, dairy, and grains, all gluten-free products. And we say it may be difficult for many readers to, readers to follow. However, the short-term nature of the program and its promise of quickly realized benefits mean Hyman won't be short of willing takers. And a lot of these books do promise. A quick turnaround, a quick weight loss, a quick way to detox your body, and uh, you get a lot of these books on the list. And and I think some some complaints of some some of these diet books are, well, how long do the effects last, and how dedicated do you have to be? Is this truly a life-altering? Uh, you know, is, is this a is this a diet that one can follow to in, to indeed alter their lives? But um, the books sell well, and. Um, and especially Mark Hyman. Mark Hyman has a strong following, and he's got a proven uh, track record. And the thing that frustrates me is that any dietary change, you know, if, if you really make an abrupt change to your diet of pretty much any kind, right. um, you'll see it, some, an immediate short-term sure. shift in your weight. And um, that that happens really consistently, and it doesn't much matter which which diet you try. If it's the you know, gluten free diet, or uh, going to the the, the caveman diet, right. uh, or or switching Paleo, to low fat, yeah. or you know, giving up dairy products, or you know whatever it is, um, a shift like that can change your metabolism in the short term. Right. And um, I feel like all of these you know, ten day diet books kind of take advantage of that. Uh, without necessarily giving anyone much benefit beyond that. Well, and and they would you know they would say that this would be and and especially with this exactly that is a ten day detox diet. I don't know what he does beyond that. Um, and and there are some books that really do encourage you to change a lifestyle. Uh, I think Mark Bittman's book mm. uh, Vegan Before Six kind of helps you think about that in the long term and thinks about how you know helps you think about how to do that but but again these these books are hugely hugely popular oh, and sure. and you see them time and again uh on, on the bestseller list 
And moving on, uh, number three is uh, A Short Guide to a Long Life, David B. Agus. He uh, takes inspiration from Michael Pollan's Food Rules. He's a cancer specialist who distills advice from his previous books. It was called The End of Illness. Into a simple set of rules for for living wisely through healthy habits. you know, we, we do say that those uh, who still need convincing might do better to read his earlier book, which is The End of Illness. But again, this, this, he, he, um, he, he does kind of guide readers on how to, you know, a list of checkups that you should do, uh, that you should, you know, schedule, and uh, you know, talks about, you know, weight gain and, and, and basic guidelines that you should do. But this is number three on our bestseller list. So similar thing, it, it's how-to, uh, but not a diet book. It's more a, um, uh, a narrative book on how to do that. And finally, The Future of the Mind, The Scientific Quest to Understand, Enhance, and Empower the Mind by Michio uh, Kaku, uh, the author of Physics of the Future. We call this an illuminating journey through the mind. Theoretical, he's a, Kaku's a theoretical physicist, explores fantastical realms of science fiction that may soon become reality. We also say that um, uh, uh, while fascinating, uh, a lot of the topics are fleeting, or how he goes to them are fleeting. Like he'll skip from telepathy helmets to cell phone MRIs in just over a page. Hmm. So he just kind of goes through everything. But uh, it's number five on our bestseller list. I wouldn't mind a telepathy helmet. I was thinking about that too to go with those google glasses well but it's one of those things where of course you need to make sure that nobody's accessing thoughts you don't want to have accessed yeah this is true how would one do that so i uh, that's that's always the snag with the science fiction that maybe right, comes back sure uh, of course a, a lot of the science fiction is spent exploring the problems uh right. but it, it would be interesting to see how it's approached in that particular book sure I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Paul Rosalie will tell us about being hugged by anacondas in the Peruvian jungle. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Paul Rosalie on the line. He's the author of Mother of God, An Extraordinary Journey into the Uncharted Tributaries of the Western Amazon. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about this book and that extraordinary title. (laughs) Um, I grew up um, reading the stories of adventures and nonfiction and I started working in the Amazon when I was 18 years old. And, you know, when you work in the West Amazon, it's this Wild West sort of landscape where you have gold gold miners and poachers and loggers and uncontacted tribes and, of course, giant anacondas and all the craziest wildlife you can imagine. And after working there for a few years, I just I had the luck of running into some really unique experiences. So, uh, you know, this book just sort of sort of came out of nowhere. So where, where does the title of your book come from? When, you, when you're publishing a book, I, I wrote the book, and then the publisher wanted a subtitle, and I said, I don't really know what to call it. You know, I had these very, you know, conservation biology sort of titles for it, like, you know, like a, an interesting look at the ecosystems, and they were like, no, 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 and they were like, this is what it needs to be, so they, um, they came up with that. It's an extraordinary journey, but it sounds like you've made many journeys through there. Um, it's been, it's been, it's kind of the summary of an, of a, of a bunch of journeys. Yeah. It's, it's been over the last 10 years, sort of my, my recurring trips down there and each chapter is a part of, of the greater story of which has been trying to protect this one river down there. 
So you said you went down there when you were 18 years old. And uh, how, how did you end up going down there and getting into this field? It says you were a naturalist and an explorer. Well, I grew up in New York, and my parents would always bring me to the Bronx Zoo, which was my favorite place. Mm -hmm. And in, when you go in the Bronx Zoo, you go into the reptile house and jungle world, and you see these pictures of scientists in places like Borneo and the Amazon and these exciting places and as a little kid it just got in my head that those are the places I wanted to be and I wanted to be those guys who get to see all the incredible wildlife and work to protect it and so I actually dropped out of high school after sophomore year took my GED and started going to college and um, I at first went to the Amazon as an ecotourist the first time I went I was just a volunteer um, helping out on a research project and then I just had the incredible luck of making great friends with a local guy down there who started teaching me things. So you run a, a tourism company now, but uh, you're using the tourism to support rainforest conservation. So tell us a little bit about how that works. Basically, the area of the Amazon where we are, called the Madre de Dios, Mother of God, um, it's, it's an incredibly wild place, and there's these huge national parks there. And the reason these parks are there is because the Peruvian government has agreed to say, instead of just ripping out this forest, we're going to try and make a sustainable alternative. So they're trying to encourage ecotourism. And with the, with the wildlife that's there, I mean, you have more butterflies than anywhere else on Earth, more plants, more reptiles and amphibians. It has all the superlatives. This is the most biodiverse place on the whole planet. So ecotourism is, is, a pretty, is a pretty viable option down there, and what I'm doing is trying to bring it to a corner of this place where it hasn't been before. So the Las Piedras River, which a lot of the book focuses on, is this really remote spot of jungle that very recently has had a road cut that accesses it. So the river is changing really fast, but what we're trying to do is establish ecotourism on the river which will employ local people and also allow us to sort of work with the landowners and, you know, create, create a workable system so that this river isn't just clear-cut. So, so tell us, this, uh, this region of Peru, the Madre de Dios, and this is the Mother of God, this is I was referring to before the title of your book, uh, where the Amazon River begins. Can you just give us a little description of what it might look like to someone just coming there for the first time? When you fly in, you fly in from Cusco, which is where Machu Picchu is, and you come through these clouds, and at first you're going past the high peaks of the Andes, so the plane is actually going parallel to these snowy, snowy caps. And then when you drop below the clouds, what happens is literally the Andes Mountains drop off and the Amazon starts. It's one of the only places in the world where you go from glacial high altitude down to steaming jungle and in a matter of 15 miles. It's, it's, it's incredible. Mm. And first you hit this cloud forest where there's just these cascading waterfalls, and this is the headwaters of the Amazon. So the title, Mother of God, I actually think is very interesting because you have this incredibly unique, beautiful, and you know biodiverse place. And because of the mountains and the drop to the jungle, this is the engine that runs the Amazon jungle. Mm -hmm. So the systems, the, the, the moisture systems and the, the interactions between the different plants and animals, that's creating the Amazon. And the Amazon gives our planet a fifth of its oxygen and a fifth of its fresh water. So it's, it really is this, this life-giving system, this very, very special place on Earth that's not like anywhere else. 
So how has that place changed in all the time that you've been traveling there and spending time there? Ooh. Um, you know, I started, it was 10 years ago now, which is really not that much time, but already I've seen a lot of change. There's been, you know, there's places where, I mean, the Trans-Amazon Highway, which is, you know, a project that Brazil cut, funded by the World Bank back in the 70s, and it was just paved, finished paved, being paved a few years ago, and I was there before it was paved, mm-hmm. when it used to be only four vehicles on this tiny dirt road per day. Now there's 866 vehicles on this road per day. And that road is the first time in all of history that there's a trade route now that connects the center of the Amazon to the Asian markets. So things like gold, timber, soy, beef, um, those, those are exploding and, you know, so is deforestation. You know, there's like kind of a land grab. It's the Wild West. People can go in there and just it's too big to police so the governments are you know having a hard time so i've seen towns spring up i've seen rivers dry up i've seen a lot of gold mining um you know back in the 90s we had the mahogany boom and i write about this in the book that there was a time on the Las Piedras river where there was so much logging going on for mahogany and mahogany trees are so valuable that the prostitutes in the in the back country would be on boats and instead of collecting payment in money since you're out in the wilderness they would actually just carry tape measures and collect payment in board feet of timber wow but, wow yeah it's, it's a rough country out there and it's just changing fast and you know it's kind of a free-for-all wow and and mahogany is one of the woods that have been is, is that one of the ones that have been banned uh in the united states it's, it can't be banned because they're still selling it, but it's, it, they've been trying to regulate it. The problem is the, the, the entire logging industry is so corrupt. Mm. I actually have interviewed loggers down there who have told me that they, they try and comply with the international regulations on these precious hardwoods, and then each night trucks pull up and they swap lumber, call it different things, and they make their, their money under the table. Wow. And tell us about the indigenous people there. Um, How have their lives changed in the 10 years that you've been going there? Well, there's a few different, um, I'm not sure what to call it, levels maybe, but different types of indigenous people. You have people that have indigenous heritage and now work in the city and are connected to the modern world and economy. Um, And then you have people that, like, like the people that I work with, who grew up in the jungle and are still very much part of their indigenous communities and still live with the forest and harvest, you know, bushmeat and other products. But in the Madre de Dios, we actually still have uncontacted tribes. Um, on the Las Piedras River, we have, over the, over the this summer, in August, um, over 80 naked nomadic Indians came out onto the beach um, and the reason for this is the changes that are happening. They've noticed that there's more people coming into their forests, more hunters. And little quick history of uncontacted tribes. When when the Spanish showed up back in the you know 1500s, um, certain tribes were extinguished, others were made slaves, and certain tribes fought. These people have been fighting for you know half a millennium now, and. They are the wildest. You know, we know nothing about these people. They have medicines we don't know about. They've never seen anything made out of metal. They have no spoons, forks, let alone the wheel. Um, And they're still surviving out there, but their world is changing. Um, For example, mahogany. People have taken all the mahogany trees, even out of standing forest. They go in and take just the mahogany tree. Hmm. 
So the mahogany trees have been taken down across the Madre de Dios. So the only places that they're left are in the most extremely isolated parts of the jungle, and that's where the tribes live. So as the mahogany loggers go into these places, the loggers are firing shotguns, the tribes are firing bows and arrows, and both sides are, you know, killing each other. Wow, that sounds very intense. It so. is, it is. And the tribes can't advocate for themselves because they live they live in, you know, obscurity. Most people until actually until a few years ago the Peruvian government's official position was to deny their existence. They said that they were a myth. And now of course because of aerial photographs and encounters we know that they are not a myth. Wow. And what have your encounters been like as as you've been traveling there? Um, thankfully I've only had one encounter. Um the first of all the tribes live in places that are extremely remote and hard to access. Um and in the Madre de Dios on Piedras, for example, you could travel upriver for two weeks by boat and still not reach the headwaters. Um, it's just this endless river. So they're way up there and people have there's been examples where people have run into these tribes and tried to talk with them or reason with them. Uh, one example, I, I believe it was in Colombia, where some missionaries ran into an uncontacted tribe, and they showed them clothing and hats, and they even took one of the guys for a ride in their plane. And these missionaries, in their religious fervor, weren't sort of aware of the fact that these people didn't understand the modern world. So when the missionaries showed a picture of their family back home, the people in the tribe looked at this picture and said, that, you know, they were confused. They saw humans. But at the same time, it looked like a trick because there was no human. And the leader of the tribe ordered all of the missionaries to be killed. So I believe it was five people were slaughtered on the beach simply because there was a misunderstanding that this tribe thought that they were, you know, some, having some sort of evil spirits with them because of a photograph. Um, so you really have to be careful around tribes. They also have no immunities to the common cold and other things that we're carrying on us. So an encounter between us and them Although it could be physically dangerous at the moment for us, um, in the long run, they could end up, entire tribes have been wiped out by con contact. So um, it's, pretty, it's a pretty you know, delicate situation. Thankfully, when I saw um, the, the tribe that I saw, it was pretty far off. They saw me, I saw them, and I made a very clear show of turning around and getting out of there as fast as I could. <laughs> well, yeah. let's talk anacondas now. Uh, this uh, is a, this okay. is a specialty of yours. Uh, yeah. uh, something you've been researching for, I, I imagine, those ten years that you've been uh, down there, at least part of those ten years. How um, how does their existence affect the Amazon ecosystem? And tell us what and you tell tell us about your fascination in general with anacondas. Sure. Well, I, I have this fascination in general um, with snakes. I've been working with snakes and, and catching, rehabilitating, rescuing snakes since I was eight years old. I've worked with spitting cobras and bushmasters and all the most venomous snakes. Um, handling snakes is kind of my specialty. Um, with anacondas, you know, it's the, it's the biggest, heaviest snake on earth. You know, they're just legendary. And in the Amazon, what's interesting is... A lot of the apex predators get attention. Jaguars get attention, giant river otters, harpy eagles, all these big predators that excite people. Anacondas are an apex predator that doesn't get a lot of attention. Um, part of this is because they're a snake and everyone's scared of snakes. The other part is because they're kind of difficult to study. Um, so when I first went to the Amazon, you know, I understood the importance of this species. They start out at only two feet when they come out of their mother. 
and they're, they're born live, they're not, they don't come out of eggs. And this two-foot animal is going to eat small fish, small birds, frogs, mice, and then when they get to, to their full size, which is up to 30 feet, wow. they can eat jaguars, humans, black caiman, you know, all, anything in the Amazon can be eaten by an anaconda. Right. So you have this thing that's affecting every level of the food chain. Mm -hmm. And so it's an incredibly important character in sort of the cast of Amazon predators. And I noticed that we weren't seeing them in a lot of places. And the aha moment came when we were on an expedition in a really remote place and we started seeing tons of anacondas. And we sort of realized that people down there just kill them. If, you, if, if a local person sees an anaconda, they're going to kill it because they're scared of it and they don't understand it. Um, so they shoot them. So we found that in human areas there's really not anacondas and in more wild areas there's a lot more anacondas, and that's partly because they're being hunted and partly because the other animals that aren't also aren't being hunted, there's more of a prey base. So we started looking for anacondas and just started finding all this incredible stuff. In fact, the in this region, anacondas have never been studied before. So right now we're actually starting the first official study of anacondas, and our study, which um, you know I talk about in the book, led us to the floating forest, which is a completely unique, you know, sort of place that I haven't been able to find its, its equal anywhere in the Amazon. Mm. So, uh, so, so we found some pictures of you getting pretty up close and personal <laughs> with anacondas. You, you should have seen the looks on our faces. <laughs> those are, those are some impressive creatures. What's it like to be, you know, hugged by an anaconda? Well, as long as you know how to do it, it's really nice. Um, they're, it's basically, you know, it's basically a giant muscle. So those pictures, um, the ones that you saw, the biggest one I have pictures of, are it's a 15 foot female, and she's about, she was considerably thicker than my thigh, and I'm I'm 5'10 and 180 pounds. Uh, so this is a big snake, and it took us 20 minutes of wrestling and maneuvering to get this snake manageable. That's that's wow. how serious she was, and it was four of us, and that's in, in the team that got her. Wow. Yeah, and when you have that snake over your shoulders, you have to be really careful because they can collapse your rib cage in a matter of seconds, less than 10 seconds. I mean, they kill animals much bigger than us. They can take down cows. Mm. So we're, we're really easy for them to asphyxiate and crush. So yeah, you, you have this huge animal over your neck and you can just feel every muscle in its body moving. It's actually really an incredible, impressive thing. And they're really beautiful up close, mm -hmm. you know? So how did you know that this one in particular was not going to crush you? Oh, no, she tried. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thing is with anacondas, they, we go anaconda hunting. There's a phenomenon down there called friaje where the, the cold air from the Andes, sometimes in May and June, it blows down into the lowlands, and the jungle goes down to like 50 degrees, which for the jungle feels like the dead of winter. Mm-hmm. And the anacondas, as reptiles, they need the sun to get their warmth, so they, they end up coming out, which they never do. They end up coming out and exposing themselves in the open and looking for the sun. And so you find these very tired, you know, relaxed, frigid anacondas, giants, laying on the sides of the river. So we found her like that. And, you know, when you, we have to measure her and we have to weigh her and we have to find out whether it's a he or she. So we have to kind of work with them. But in order to do that, they think you're attacking them. And as far as they know, they're in, you know, they're in danger of losing their life, so they're going to defend themselves. Mm. So you, as the, as the anaconda catcher, you have to make sure that you're right behind the head 
And, you know, you have to, that's the point of going with a bunch of people because if that snake wraps around you, you're done. Wow. Now let's turn the conversation just a little bit to to the writing of the book. Now it, you've you've spent what seems a long time outdoors, um, and writing seems to be more of an indoor endeavor. How how was how was that experience for you? Um, the actual act of writing. If you asked me before I started writing this book, I never would have um, sort of imagined myself becoming an author. But I, I found that the stories that I had whether it's anacondas or an encounter with a jaguar or sort of giving people a taste of what the Madre de Dios is like. You know, to me, being able to get it perfect and to, to really bring someone into that world was really interesting to me. And I, I found the writing process actually really good. Most of it started where we come back muddy and bloody and sweaty from a long day out or a long two weeks out, you know, with anaconda feces still all over us. And I would just be sitting there at night in my hammock writing down in my notebook. <laughs> and then a month later when I got home, I would, you know, spend weeks at the, you know, at the computer, you know, turning it all into, into writing. It was a long process and, and difficult for me because I'm, I'm not a person that can sit still for very long, but it, it was very, very enjoyable and gratifying. We've been talking with Paul Rosalie. You can find his book, Mother of God, in stores right now. Paul, thank you so much for joining us, and thank you for uh, all these wonderful stories. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks a lot. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW blogger Josie Levitt gives us a bookseller's eye view of publishing, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW blogger Josie Levitt is calling us from her independent bookstore, The Flying Pig, in <laughs> Shelburne, Vermont. Hi, Josie. Hi, guys. Hi. It's great to have you on the show. So, Thanks for having me. Uh, you, you had an idea that I thought was really interesting that I wanted to talk about, which is about grown women buying young adult books. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's interesting. You know, it started, Harry Potter started it a little, and then Twilight sent it over the edge. And then once the, the, the women realized that young adult novels appealed to them, then they sort of almost guiltily sneak back in the section and say, what else can I read? So why, why, do, you, why do you think it's guilty? I, mean, you know, I books think they feel books. like they're reading a kid's book, and, and that perception is changing almost weekly, because as they read more young adult novels, they realize they are very well written, the characters are excellent, and oftentimes it has less of the extraneous details that an adult novel will have, so you get, it's almost more pure story. Mm-hmm. And now there's no guilt. You know, people feel weird, like, I shouldn't be reading a kid's book, or I shouldn't be reading a middle grade novel. Well, once they realize they were good and they enjoyed them, now that people are sort of traveling back into middle grade and they're reading books they miss as a kid, so there's been a nice shift. So are, 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 are you finding women doing this clandestinely, like sneaking into the uh, young adult section, grabbing a book, and kind of going into the uh, more serious nonfiction and kind of reading it there? <laughs> um, some women do. Some women will sort of, you know, like especially with Twilight, because they felt guilty, because it, it seemed like a guilty pleasure to them. You know, it was sort of a precursor to, it was a much tamer Fifty Shades of Grey, but it was the same attitude, like, do you have that book? Mm-hmm. Do you have that book everyone's talking about? I'm like, yes, about the vampires? Yes. <laughs> And 
what's happening is some women will sort of sneak back. They will know what they want to read because their daughters are reading it. They're like, I need bitter blue. I need it now. And they'll come and they'll grab it and they'll head. They will exactly head right back to the literary fiction section and hang on. And they'll sort of tuck <laughs> the, the, the YA book under their, you know, under, you know, their Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And then we'll bring them up. Like, you know, they're both really good books. It's okay. <laughs> and some women just come in now and they say, what's great in the young adult section? And we have probably four or five customers who almost exclusively read young adult. And they are great fun to talk to. And they're just like, okay, what came out this week? Like, what do I need to read? So so after they've, they've read the Twilight series, which, which books are you uh, pointing them towards? Well, they go to Twilight, Harry Potter. They go to um, the Divergent series. They go to Christian Kishore's Graceling, Fire, Bitter Blue. They'll go to um, the Andrea Kramer books. They will also, all of them have read The Hunger Games, and they've all said they've read it because they wanted to make sure it was okay for their kids. That's another reason why people will spend time in this section is they want to make sure it's appropriate for their kids to read. But in fact, they're reading it because they're enjoying them. Um, um, Clockwork Angel, that she's been very popular. Anything by, by Libra Bray has been great. Um, and also now we're getting away from sort of the dystopian sort of fantasy novel, which is what started people in the young adult fantasy section. And now they're drifting over in, in, in our sort of fantasy section is to the left of the regular young adult section. And now they're all going to their right and they're going, what about John Green? How about a Sarah Dessen? What about a David Levison or a Lori House Anderson? So they're starting to spend just some more quality time back here. So it's just interesting. And sometimes I'll come in with a, spe- you know, a specific person, like you know, Kate Tiernan, what, what else of hers is there? And I'll just read through the entire series and want more. So I handle the science fiction fantasy uh, section over here at PW, and I've seen a lot of authors doing crossover, essentially authors who started out writing young adult or middle grade books, like Greg Van Eekhout has got an adult book coming out now, um, Sarah Beth Durst has an adult book coming out, and vice versa, you see science yeah, fiction like authors. Taylor. Right, right, yeah. and you see science fiction authors also going the other direction, like Cory Doctorow, who got a start, um, and who also writes for PW occasionally, um, did a couple of young adult novels. After. Yeah, they were great. They were great books. So I was wondering if you see customers making similar crossovers. Do you see people coming from the adult science fiction and fantasy and going toward the YA or vice versa? Well, we've actually, Elizabeth, who co-owns the story me very smartly, has combined the adult and the young adult fantasy hmm. section because, honestly, for us, it turned into a space issue. Mm-hmm. So, And our, our adult science fiction and fantasy section isn't as big as it could be. But we have it sort of mixed in. So, but you, so in answer to your question, yes, there is definitely a crossover. That sounds very smart, actually, putting them all together. I, I feel like that's almost a more English way of doing things. I think I see a lot of books very firmly labeled YA here that are billed as adult books in the UK. Same, yeah, like There's exactly, less of a like distinction. The Book Thief, for mm-hmm. instance, you know, and that... Um, and that's a book we sell equally. We probably sell that more to, to adults than we do to kids. Um, and I, I think there's probably a reason for that. Um, but it's so interesting because people, they forget how much fun it is to read a young adult novel. And they get, you know, some adult novels, you know, they want something for a book group that's a satisfying read that's well-written but isn't going to take perhaps as long as an adult novel will take to read. And I said, try young adults. Because they don't take as long to read, and um, they're just as satisfying, if not more. And once they read a couple and they have a good experience, then they basically camp out here. 
So I was actually going to ask about book groups and book clubs because it sounded like you had enough interest to, to start something like that. We don't have enough staff to actually run our own book group at the moment. But what we'll do is, you know, book, heads of book groups will come in and they'll talk to us and say, okay, what can we do? Um, and we've recommended, like, um, I forget our first name, Moriarty's um, A Corner of White, which definitely feels like a crossover book to me. And people are loving that. So we'll help, we'll guide a book group into that selection um, if that's something that, that, that they're looking for. Because people start second-guessing themselves. Well, any book group head starts to get second-guessing themselves because there's such pressure now to pick the right book. Mm-hmm. Um, but especially when they're in the young adult section where they don't trust themselves as much because they're, you know, you know, they're 30 or 20 years beyond being a young adult. They think, well, I'm not, I don't know if it's good. It's like, it's a good book. You're, over, you're overthinking it. Um, but we do, and we, we just offer guidance. And we probably could, in the summer, I think we're going to try and have um, books, you know, kids' books for, for grown-ups. Because there are a lot of middle-grade books, too, now that, that adults are dipping back into and really enjoying. And a lot of these people don't even have kids. And you mentioned that it's gendered, that these are a lot of women doing this. And I was yeah. wondering, what about the men? Um, I don't see men doing this as much. <laughs> Um, I do. There are men who will come in and they've read, they certainly didn't read Twilight, but they are reading the Divergent series and they are reading The Hunger Games. They're, they tend to read more of the, the, I don't want to sort of categorize, just only the, 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 the bestsellers that are getting pressed, but that's sort of where they start. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, to be fair, we don't see as many men in the store as we do women, so women probably outnumber male shoppers by probably at least three to one. Wow. Yeah, I I knew women were more generally the ones buying more books and reading more books, but I didn't realize it was quite that skewed. It's gotten to the point actually with some women that we actually tease them and say, "Are you sure you're married? Because we've never met your husband in the 18 years we've been in business." <laughs> um, and some men, yeah, again, we're still it's a little bit by the perception that we're a children's only bookstore, which we haven't been for you know 10 years. Um, but once men come in here, we then we keep them as readers. <laughs> right. But one one thing I've noticed is men are much more reliant on their um, e-reader, be it a Kindle or an iPad or a Nook. Like they're they're not buying as many physical books, whereas women definitely seem to be staying in the physical book realm. Just curious. I mean, I, I've also heard that men tend to buy more nonfiction or uh, uh, than fiction books. I mean, have you been finding that? That has been true since the day we opened the store. Right. And it's true It's true with, with little boys, too. Like, And we had no signage to indicate that we had a truck section or a mm-hmm. sort of ballet uh, fairy section. And without any prompting from us or the parents, the, the, the children would self-select almost mm-hmm. exclusively that the boys would hang out with the trucks and the girls would go other places. So that, and even my nephews are very much nonfiction readers. And uh, some men, there's one guy, my customer who I adore, who really likes um, Nicholas Sparks. And he comes in and he feels guilty. He says, oh. people make fun of me. And I said, but they're good books. It's okay. And I always carry them just for him. So when he comes, I always get the oh, new wow. one and I call him and let him know that it's here. And he comes in and he grabs it and he says, you know, my wife makes fun of me for reading this. I said, well, then, you know, that's not very nice, but are, are you <laughs> enjoying it? Nice. That's all that matters. Yeah, right. <laughs> you, you can point him to the, the piece I did uh, a while back that we ran in one of our romance issues about men who write romance novels. Um, yes. they're, they're out there. They're out there. You can there tell him he's not that. alone. And, and he understands that, but he just, he likes... No, it's a, hard. 
and he likes romantic comedies. He says, you know, I know, some, I know most men don't really like these kinds of movies or books, but this is who I am. And I said, and I'm happy to help you with any of your book needs. I don't, you know, and he's like, thank you for having Nicholas Sparks. I'm like, glad to help out, oh. you know. Wow, great. Yeah. So going back to the uh, the young adult books, what are some of the surprises that you've seen, or some some titles that perhaps we we haven't heard that haven't been on the bestseller list that that you're finding uh, either particularly popular in your store or just ones that you personally. Uh, well, one of the books that we loved, and I I haven't seen them on the bestseller list in paperback, which surprises me, mm-hmm. is the Lady Taylor series, Daughters of Smoke and Bone, and. Um, Days of Blood and Starlight because that was a staff favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, and that people just come in right for that and they did just go right for her. Um, and that is that is just so, they're so beautifully written. Um, and so I'm quickly I'm quickly scanning. Well, can here. you tell me a little bit about those two titles? What but I love, like Daughter of Smoke and Bone, what I love about this book is the protagonist is 17 and she's raised by Brimstone but she doesn't know really who Brimstone is. She just mm-hmm. knows funny sort of funky things happen like she made a wish for her hair to always be blue and her hair is always blue and she made that wish when she was six and she goes on these errands for brimstone and you know uses these these portals and has to collect teeth for him and something starts happening and all the portals start closing but she sees from the distance this beautiful man who's an angel so it's, it's really it's a love story what happens when the, when the devil who's a woman falls in love with an angel mm. so it's got a lot um, tension, it's got struggle, it's got nice, beautifully written language, and it's set in Prague, and she does a, a, just a, a great job of capturing, capturing the beauty of Prague. And there's just a lot to it, and there's a sort of, I, for lack of a better phrase, there's a lot to chew on mm-hmm. in this book, and it's, it's resonating, and at least one adult book group has done Daughter of Smoke and Bone, which has been great. The Patrick Ness um, Chaos Walking series has been hugely popular. Um, uh, you know, Philip Pullman, he always is popular, even though, you know, I've been out a long time now. Mm-hmm. Um, a Corner of White, which was my one of my favorite books of the year, we sold very, very well at Christmas time. Um, Matched, Cross, Reads, that whole series by Ali Condi, has been just as popular with moms as it has been with the teenage girls, which has been interesting. And the girls sometimes don't like it that the moms are reading the same books as them. I was just going to ask, I mean, is this something that's that's forming bonds between moms and daughters, or is this something that daughters are saying, oh, no, like almost as if your your parent is listening to the same music as you, and you're like, <laughs> oh, no, or trying you know, to save the same dance moves um, or something. Some moms and daughters are using it as a as a way to bond, and if, if they're sort of a book-oriented family, they're able to really talk about it and dig in and have good, meaty discussions about, like, why do you like Bitter Blue? Like, what do you think is going to happen? Mm-hmm. Um, and other kids are like, stop reading my books. It's, it's almost like a mom wearing a, a daughter's jeans. It's not cheese. cool anymore. Right, right. <laughs> right, I'm not cool anymore because we're reading the same book. And now they're going to look back at it and think, my God, that was totally awesome. Right. That my mom did this, but you know, when you're 17 or fi- when you're when you're 14 to 16, you're like, get out of my library. But when you're a little bit older, like the 17 to 18 year old girls who shop here, actually like being able to talk to their moms about these books. I wonder if there are any mother daughter book groups. There are. There are. They're 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 younger. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't have any at the store at the moment, but the schools run a bunch, and so does the library, and they're all for kids, middle school and younger. Partly because 
the high schools here, the kids have so much homework. They they don't really get to do pleasure reading except in the summer. So that's just a hard one to sort of coordinate just because of the, the workload of the teenagers. Mm-hmm. Man, that's kind of sad. I, it is I, really I, sad. When I was in school, I just I just lived for books. I can't imagine the idea of no time for pleasure reading except in the summer. Like that that's that's terrible. That's like not feeding your child ten months. It's, ahead. And it's not that. I mean, the parents would love for the kids to do pleasure reading. Sure. I've had more parents come in saying, oh, "It's killing me that there's so much homework and it's busy homework. It's not even like substantive homework." Right. You know, and I have both my nephews go to sort of funky private schools, and they get a ton of homework, and the public schools have even more. Uh, yeah, yep. Um, and, you know, there's this push to testing and, you know, standards and what school you're going to go to. And I've had little sixth graders say to me, you know, I, I, I don't have time to read that because I, I need to get into a good school. I'm like, sweetheart, you're in sixth grade. Mm-hmm. It's okay. You know, Garth Nix has been very popular, too. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm looking around the Sabriel series. I'm sorry, who is, who is that when you just... Garth Nix. And what is the title? Uh, Sabriel, that whole series, has been very popular. Those came out many years ago. Yeah, you know, people, these things cycle back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all it takes is one of us. Usually, if, if, if Elizabeth, who owns this room, likes a book, we'll sell oodles of them. I mean, if anyone here at the bookstore, like, I, I'm responsible for her daughter smoking violence. Like, that, it's popular. She, Elizabeth is totally responsible for the night of ne- never letting go flying off the shelves here. If we love something and we talk about it, it gets people will listen and try it well i if i could i wanted to ask a little bit since we've been talking about girls what what is it then that boys are reading um in 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 kids what what kind of fiction are they reading let's say second third fourth grade oh they are reading um some of them are reading all the mo willems books some of Mm -hmm. them are reading john mill stilton Mm -hmm. some of them are reading um some of the earlier anthony horowitz books um, what else are they reading? They are reading. Um, they're reading. When they get to a certain age, they read almost exclusively fantasy, mm, and they, it's really? really hard to get them to read realistic fiction. Right. So they're reading a ton of Roald Dahl. They're reading. Um, the Brandon Mull books are very popular. I'm trying to. See. Um, so is Lloyd Alexander. Mm-hmm. You know, he, and some of the obby books for the kids who like animals as well. Redwall is still hugely popular, as are all of the Aaron Hunter books. Ranger's Apprentice. And then Finn Family Movement Troll for, like, the third graders. Tashi books are great for the younger guys. Mm-hmm. And, you know, little ones will read just about anything. Right. But then you do have your hardcore kids who only want to read the science section or the history section. Right, right, exactly. But that, yeah, yeah. I notice, is changing this year especially I think because they're doing so much of it at school because of the Common Core so they're getting more of their fix of the history at school and they're coming to us for some of the fiction Mm -hmm. well Josie thank you so much for that look at the shelves and what's flying off of them it's uh, great to hear from you thank you well thanks for calling it's a real pleasure to have you on I'm so glad hope to hope to talk to you again very soon we'd love that And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 